when I heard about NFTs, my first reaction was like, ah, <laughs> which was crazy. Um, and then I looked into a little further and I was like, okay, this is cool, but I don't know how it'll work for movies. I couldn't, I couldn't see it right away. Um, and then I saw it. Welcome back to Cool Hand Crypto, where cinema, culture, and crypto collide. My name is Matt Silverman, and please remember to subscribe on YouTube and your favorite podcast app. Today's guest is an actor, writer, producer, director, and cinematic disruptor. You may recognize his name from films such as Tragedy Girls, Toucan, or his latest, his feature directorial debut, Flinch, which I watched last night. And if you love... Los Angeles crime-ridden sagas dripping in neon synthwave music, the grimy characters of L.A.'s underbelly, then you will have to check this film out. Cameron Van Hoy, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Why don't you start telling us a little bit about your background, because you've been working in the industry, I think, since you were 14. Yeah, I did. I, I was acting professionally as a kid. Um, 14 was when I, I did my first, I think the first thing I was on was the cartoon, Hey Arnold. Oh, awesome. I feel like we could have a whole conversation just about all of the different, uh, icons and, and people you've worked with and projects you've worked on and, and starred in. Um, but we'll mainly talk about your feature today. Uh, so why don't you give us a, a quick, uh, a quick summary of, of going from a 14 year old actor to. Uh, what we're going to talk about today, Flinch. Yeah, I've I've always loved telling stories is really like what it comes down to. Even me acting as a kid came out of me just loving movies, loving theater, loving like putting on a show, creating a world. I had a video camera, somehow ended up in Hollywood. I, I was doing like theater locally and started working as an actor. And then um, all the while was really in love with my video camera and then moved to New York, went to the high school for performing arts. There, I really got into movies. I lived in Brooklyn, and I would go to the Brooklyn library and just rent, like they had all the classics. And the, you know, this was pre-internet. Um, so like finding things like the Criterion Collection, finding like discovering classic filmmakers. I did that at the library. And it was just really into it. It's kind of like a movie nerd. Um, and started making my own films and then moved to Los Angeles to be a filmmaker and came out here and just jumped right into it and started producing my own movies and then like writing them as well. And then, uh, yeah, you know, had some success with that and have most recently jumped into the director's chair, uh, my first feature flinch. Awesome. So before we get to flinch, when you were producing your own movies, uh, what was that like? Were you finding financing? Were these no budget films or were you uh, finding investors? I was putting together projects, actors, creators, developing the scripts and finding the money. And at first they were next to no budget movies. I mean, like, I think the first one I did, I did for like $150,000. Um, and then it was kind of like weird sporadic. I actually did a film kind of around, around that time, which we did for a few million. Um, and then the next one that I did, it was like a quarter of a mil and then half a mil and then two mil and then four mil. And like, it kind of just kept growing in that sense. And it's always, they've always been smaller budget independent films. Like I kind of maxed out in that $5 million 
uh, price point. It was finding the money, developing the scripts, some of the screenplays I wrote, and I would develop them with the filmmakers and it's just making movies in every capacity, like as a producer, from financing to the creative to dealing with the distribution and all of that stuff. When you were looking for financing, were these contacts you already had or were you pitching projects around town and, and meeting new people? Yeah, it's it's always I mean, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a producer, you're always pitching and meeting new people. That's a big part of the game. Um, so, yeah, I was, I, you know, I was just meeting. There's so many different types of places and people that finance movies. There's there's companies that focus on that specifically. There are foreign sales companies that pre-sell foreign in exchange for money. There's the studios. Um there's debt financing, there's private equity, there's just production company. There's there's a lot of ways to do it. I've navigated some of that myself, and it's maddening, and uh, it, it can be very difficult to find the right balance of, of those different financing methods. Have you, have you found that one or another is, is particularly successful? No. Um, no. They're all maddening. It's mad, like the industry is quite maddening, and especially when it comes to getting a movie made. Um, and I think we'll probably get into this combo as it relates to blockchain, because I think it's an incredible solution, not just for film, but for all creators and business owners. Um, so, you know, it's exciting. But yeah, the state of the industry is. It's really messed up to a large extent. You know, like the foreign model is dead. It's a terrible, terrible model. These foreign sales companies suck, less a few, you know, God bless, God bless the good ones. But like, for the most part, it's a joke. Um, and I mean, we could talk about it for hours. Like the, for, the foreign model doesn't work. It's so flawed in so many ways. To, like, as an example, with what I'm doing with my project, like we've created our own cinema that connects to a crypto wallet and you can watch that all over the world. Like you don't need to like sell the territory to Germany for it to play on German television. I mean, I guess there's some money there, you know, like there are still probably the older people who are sitting around watching older films or new films on German television. I hate to pinpoint German television, <laughs> you know, like the TV networks around the world or, you know, like, and then of course the theatrical experience, I still believe in. Um, and so tapping theatrical markets around the world is probably a good place. But like when you're talking about streaming or like watching a film digitally, which is how movies are watched now for the most part. And I think will continue to be watched moving forward to the largest degree. It's like, you don't need those companies. And and then they kind of have a stronghold on those marketplaces and they're very ruthless about it um, and are not always transparent. So it's like a very broken model of foreign. And then also then, you know, you have the tech companies, which really have set the market at this point and they own it. And that's not great either. It, it like, I'm not like knocking the, the, the mega cap tech companies because I like Netflix, I like Amazon, I like Disney, I, I like a lot of the things that they put out. But, you know, the idea that they own movies, I don't like. And as of now, they do. And I think that's not healthy. And it's also created distortions in the marketplace, which 
we could talk about for hours, but it's like from the unions up. Sure. They, they don't just own movies. They own the movie industry at this point. Correct. They own the industry and they, they've set a level, like a threshold for production. And, and now like it's very hard. It's making it very hard for independent filmmakers to even get a footing. Like making a great movie for say $3 million is next to impossible today. Whereas two years ago, it was so possible. Um, and a lot of that has to do with just like the temperature of the marketplace. And it's, it's kind of set, it's the tech model, right? It's like the same thing with Uber. Uber put out all these taxi companies because they were able to just throw money um, at, you know, subsidizing rides for people. And it, it really kills like the little guy. So there's a lot of that happening. I couldn't agree more. And that's why I'm so excited to talk about your film because your film doesn't, your type of film doesn't really exist anymore. These original IP indie films uh, that I used to watch all the time in the 90s and, and 2000s, they, they don't really exist anymore. Um, so why, why don't we start with, tell, tell us what your film is. Tell us about your film. Yeah, Flinch. The movie's called Flinch. It's a crime thriller, um, which is my favorite genre. I love crime. I love crime movies. And it's a story of a young hitman who lives with his mother who falls in love with a girl who witnesses him kill somebody. And he, you know, in the moment, he he should take her out, you know, as he's a hitman. That's what he should do. But he can't because he likes her. So, you know, that's his conundrum. He brings her home to Ma, uh, who's a, a tough, a tough broad. Uh, and, and trouble ensues from there. And it's just a lot of fun. It's got like a really wonderful tone and pace to it. Let's start with um, the development of this film. You are the writer as well. Uh, wh where did the idea come from? And did you know sort of your distribution strategy and production strategy as you were writing it? Or did you just write it spec and said, I'll figure it out? I wrote an earlier draft of the movie pre-producing a film that I did called Tragedy Girls, um, which did really well uh, and is a good movie. I like it a lot. Um, and then after that, I was like, all right, time for me to direct because that's always been what I wanted to do. Uh, and so I came back to the screenplay mainly because it, you know, as an artist, you're always finding your voice, right? And like, you know, I, I went through this whole process and I'm still going through it of what is my voice? What am I saying? What, what's my style? Like all these things. And, and it just, this one just really kept calling to me. And then also it was, it was fairly compact. You know, I knew my first time out as a director, I wasn't going to have a ton of money. Um, so it, it kind of worked on all those levels and I went in and I just made the film. Like I always do any movie. I like to just, if I, if I believe in it and I, I got, and I feel strongly about it and I'm passionate for it, I just go and, and make it. Did you have a budget number in mind when you were writing it? Yeah. I wanted to do the movie for like, I wanted to do the movie for a lot less than it ended up costing. Um, and like, I wanted to do the movie below a million dollars. It ended up costing quite a bit more than what I set out to do, mainly because, you know, every step of the way, it's kind of my attitude in life is, is like, you just got to be relentless on what you're doing. So I, you know, just, it just kept growing and growing. Who financed it? Oh, I worked with um, investors that I've worked with on my previous films. They came over with me for my first time out as a director and then some new 
some new investors as well. Is one of those investors Danny Negrano, the poker player? Yeah, he's 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 invested in the movie. How did that happen? I, I know uh, of Danny from his poker career. I, I didn't even know he was yeah. producing movies. It happened through my partner and uh, producer on the film, Justin Smith. Justin's a good friend of mine and he's a filmmaker and he's just an amazing person. Um, he's a filmmaker and a deal maker and he's also a professional poker player. At least he was, he, he's one of the greats. Um, if you were like really study poker and he, he had a, a really wonderful moment in the space. Um, he doesn't play anymore, but uh, he brought in, he brought in Negreanu. Did you shoot this film during the pandemic? Right before, thank God. Nice. Yeah, we, we, we shot it right before and then we're doing post through the pandemic, which really just worked out. Um, it really worked out for us, uh, but also presented challenges, especially in the way of distribution, which I, I think we've morphed with quite well with what we're doing. Let's talk about production for a second, because it, it was it was such a joy to watch a film that was so well-crafted and so clearly had a vision behind it and style and music and um, just, just, just the, the texture of the film is, is very deliberate. And I'm wondering when that was, was developed exactly. That's kind of my vibe. You know, I, I always knew I wanted Miami nights, 1984 to score the film. You know, music's a big part of anything that I write. When I write, I listen to music. Uh, music that inspires me for the story and the tone. So I was listening to a lot of synthwave and Miami Nights 1984 while writing this. So I, I knew, and I I love that group. Like I've always wanted them to score something. I just that that aesthetic and that vibe is something I've been really passionate about for years. Um, I love synthwave, and and then like. As far as the way it was shot, it's like, yeah, like I wanted a zoom lens. I wanted the camera to move. I wanted intricate blocking amongst actors in certain moments. I wanted to shoot like exterior streets from up high, like looking down on people as they walk, which is very like a French connection. I, you know, like, I mean, there's so, you know, you, you just, there's so much when you're, when you're making it, you have like all these ideas and, and, um, and you want to execute on all of them, but also keep it cohesive and and give it give it a flavor. I wanted it to be dark. I, I wanted to shoot most of the movie at night. Um, I mean, there's just so much, you know, it's like it's just executing on all those things. And then, of course, there's a story and you want the characters to be human and and have desires and conflicts and also create thrill and keep an audience engaged and create mystery. And I wanted to pull off a twist at the end that no one saw coming. And yeah, you, you, you try to achieve all of these things. Did you storyboard? Yeah, I did. I did storyboard. A lot of it went out the window. Yeah. Can you talk about that? It just happens. Um, you know, one thing that I came up against with this film is like, so, I, you know, like there's certain sequences in the movie, as an example, like I don't want to give it away, but the, the sequence of her trying to get the gun, mm -hmm. if you remember. Yep, right. Yep. So I storyboarded that. I think I stuck fairly close to the storyboards on that one, you know, and was able to execute what I think is a really cool little sequence. And, and it works. Um, but like the action stuff for me, it was I didn't have the budget to do the type of action that I wanted to do. But I also just wasn't happy with the action the way it was after getting through principal photography. So I kept going back in and redoing action, which is very expensive. 
Uh, but I was kind of relentless about that. And that's where, so yeah, I'd come in with some storyboards trying to you know, naively thinking, okay, I can shoot out this action sequence in a day, right? Just not getting what I need. And then just going, this is not working. I have to get back in. I need three days. And then going back in and putting something together for three days and then going, I still don't have all the pieces that I need. And then going in and get, you know, it's like, so I kind of pieced it together because it's independent film. Um, and I'm relentless, it, it, you know, so it's hard. So the storyboarding there was like kind of all over the place. And then also sometimes you're just, you know, you're, you're at the end of your day and running out of time and you just got to like make changes last minute. Yeah. How, how long was your shoot? I was supposed to be like 17 days and it ended up being like 28 days. So can you talk about that action a little bit? Because the gunplay and and all the action was super sharp. I, I I thought it looked great. It sounded great. It looked real. Um, it it, it didn't feel um, like someone just added a muzzle flash, which is what you see in a lot of a, a lot of indie crime stuff. Um, so how did you achieve that? Well, the biggest thing is by shooting live rounds. You know, using real blanks, doing it practically, doing it in camera. You can't you can't fake that. An actor can't fake that recoil blast the sound the energy that it gives it's that's just the way to do it you know so that i was really and it's not that much more expensive to shoot live rounds at least not now maybe you know it might be moving forward but uh when we did it it was like you know you can you can do it's not it's not a crazy added expense but it gives you so much i hate added muzzle flash later we also did all of our squibs in, like they're, they're all practical. We weren't adding, you know, fake blood in post. Like the stuff looks terrible, you know? Um, so that was, that, that's probably the biggest thing working in our favor. So, so when, when we use a gun, you feel it, you know, it, yeah. it's got weight because it's, it's practical. Yeah. There are tons of films shot in Los Angeles, but there are not a ton. Of, there are not a ton of films where Los Angeles is a character itself. It's such a, sort of a, a texturally important part of the film. Um, I can think of films like Heat, one of my favorite movies. Uh, Michael Mann does a lot. Collateral, Drive. Um, uh, can, can you talk about how you approached Los Angeles in, in the making of this film? Yeah, sure. Um, I've lived here for a long time. I grew up in California originally before I went to high school in New York and then moved back to L.A. So I know L.A. and I love it. Um, I love when movies, I love when cities are characters in movies and I wanted this guy, you know, like a lot, a lot of the synth, the synth wave aesthetic is just like a, someone driving in their car, listening to synth wave music. Like there's something beautiful about that. And so that was actually very influential. And like, I knew that I wanted moments of just him like driving and you can like hopefully feel emotion with the music and like and just in like transition. Um, and I also love movies that do that. Like I, you know, I don't like going from like it's like that's like a sitcom when you like interior cut exterior interior like no like there's got it's like a it's like choreography getting from one place to the next and you want to like see things and move the camera move the like that's cinema to me. You know, those moments in between what's happening um, and that those help to inform emotionally, I think. And so that was important to me. And the DP and I, Kai, 
Saul, who I love. I think he's incredible. I think he did an amazing job on the movie. We spent a lot of time going all over LA, you know, places in LA that I also, when I was younger, would just drive around and hang out. And like, I would, I, I had this thing. Sometimes I just got to go, you know, sometimes it's willing to just get out and I would just go away and just check out a city or whatever. And so I went back to a lot of those locations of LA that I like grimy parts of LA, rundown LA, the city of LA, and just try to utilize them, you know, like hilltops where you can see the twinkling city in the distance and like, like just having fun with the camera and, and, and movement and the, and the city. How did you pair all of those amazing locations with the story or with a character? Well, LA is a very lonely city and, and Joe Doyle is a very lonely guy, you know, and, and synthwave is also very lonely music, I find. Um, so I think all of that really worked. Let's talk about your amazing cast. Uh, it, it is full of uh, some newer actors, incredible character actors. Um, I feel like the credits of your cast, if you added them all together, would equal like a thousand films or something because uh, some of these people have been in, in everything. Um, so t tell us who's in uh, Flinch. Yeah, the lead is uh, Danny Zavato, Daniel Zavato, who is an incredible actor. He's been in so much. Uh, it Follows, Don't Breathe. He was the lead of this Showtime show called uh, Penny Dreadful, the Penny Dreadful spinoff. Uh, also, HBO show here now. He's currently one of the leads on this great show that's out on HBO. It just dropped called Station Eleven. Uh, he's just a phenomenal actor. He's done so much. He's got such great range. He's great. I, I really love that guy. And then uh, Tilda Cabham Hervey uh, plays Mia. She's fairly new but has got some really wonderful credits under her belt and my god she's an amazing actress um and then the mother uh doyle's mother is played by kathy moriarty a legend who's a legend yep. yeah academy award nominee you know raging bull is like the big credit yep. but she's been in so many and it's fire in this movie i love her amazing um stephen bowers in it Scarface, obviously Breaking Bad, like some of the great crime movies. He's another wonderful actor. Um, Tom Segura's in it, comedian. Um, he's you know he's he's a Buddy Duress from Good Time, who I also consider one of the modern day great crime actors. Amazing. <laughs> Let, let's focus on Buddy uh, Duress for a second because he, I think I sure. first saw him in Good Time, and I was just yeah. like, uh, I I want to cast this guy in every movie I ever make. I mean, he's a scene stealer. Yeah. He really is. He's got it. You know, it's really interesting. I've been around actors and I've acted and I'm a filmmaker and I've, I've just been around theater. I'm a member of the actor studio. Uh, I've, I, I know actors and sometimes there's, there's a certain type of actor that just, yeah, they're scenes, they're scene stealers. They, they just, I don't know what it is. They, they grab your attention. It, it's really, it's like an animal or a baby. You, you could put an animal or, or a baby on screen and you, you kind of always watch them. And I think it's because they're very unaware of themselves. You know, great actors aren't self aware, not when they're acting. They're just, it's like term in the moment and that's buddy, you know? And so it's like watching a wild animal on screen. You can't, it's just you can't it's away, when, yeah. when they're there, you don't, cause you don't know what they're going to do. You know, it's, 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 it's really special. Um, David Proval. Yeah. 
David Proval. 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 Sorry. Oh, Let I me try that again. Proval. David Proval. I say that. <laughs> Proval? David I don't Proval. know. Maybe my, my mouth yeah. can't say it. David Proval? No, it's Proval. Proval. It's Proval. Proval. I think it – fuck. He would, I would always say his name wrong. David P. Would, like I'd be – God, I, I was, that, was, that haunted me on set. Um, it's Proval. He would yell it out. Wonderful actor, an amazing guy. Working with him was a blast. What is your approach to directing both new actors and then actors who are much older than you and have been in 100-plus movies? I mean, the approach with every actor is different, I think. You know, sometimes, you you know, everyone's different. It's it's hard to say. Um, I don't know what my approach is. I, I use what I know as an actor in my study in acting, you know. I came up studying at the actor's studio, which is very much so like, you know, method acting, Strasbourg. I studied Meisner's techniques and you, you learn kind of the lingo and then you kind of throw it all out the window and um, you cast right and then just try to communicate choices, you know, and talk about the choices that are being made, you can really get into talking about choices on like a big level and you know, like a very detailed moment to moment level. And, uh, but yeah, but whenever you do get a pro in there, they really help you because they, I mean, like I, Kathy really helped me. Kathy came in day three and she set an amazing tone and a, and a pace that was like very helpful for me as a director, just having that actor come in. Cause it was, and but Tilda and Zavato are incredible. You know what I mean? Like, and they are just so wonderful. Uh, but yeah, Kathy came in really just like, she just set an interesting tone that everyone kind of was just like, okay, you know, and, and then Buddy came in the next day and that was a whole other tone. And you just kind of find your pace and rhythm. And if you have good actors, you're going to get there. You know, you just find it together. You're an actor yourself. So you're coming from a place where you understand that part of the craft, but you're behind the camera now. And uh, you have to approach it a little differently. I'm a big believer in rehearsals. And it's hard to get rehearsals out of actors these days for a variety of reasons, which I don't like. So I definitely came away even being more so a believer in rehearsing. Um, and I think more people should rehearse pre-making films. That's one thing. Um Two is, I don't know, I go back and forth. Sometimes I like improv, sometimes I don't like it. Sometimes I just want to stick to the script. So let's um, talk about the post process. Uh, what was, how many days post did you have? And, and what did, what was that process like? I guess, were you just entering the pandemic with your post process? Or you, you finished the film completely before the pandemic? No, we were, we were entering. We were coming in still in post. We had finished before a little bit and then we're going in and finishing fully so like we finished and then that was then i went through this process of wanting to make my action better and not even just my action also like what we talked about with like driving around and transitional sequences and even like really like micro close-ups and like all sorts of stuff right so i went through that process of picking up and going in and picking up um and that's tough to do because you got to get more money and it's not just like a studio situation. It's like, Oh, we need to go back in for two weeks. You know, for me, it's like, okay, I got to like figure out how to pay for this and get a crew together again and go back. When you figured that out, were you, uh, what part of the editing process were you in? Did you have sort of a rough cut that you were looking at to make that decision? Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, I kind of knew coming out of it, like, ah, the action is not where I want it. And then you watch the movie and you're like, and I also did a lot of test screenings, which I really believe in. Um, just like, yeah, test screenings. You have audiences watch the movie and you get anonymous feedback from them. It really helps you. It's very hard to see something fresh after you've looked at it a thousand times and written it and shot it. It's just very hard. What kind of comments were you um, getting from those test screenings? There's a variety of things that we would get. Um, confusion in certain plot points. Um, like one, one example was the transition of the mom going from not liking Mia to accepting Mia. Right. Right. Like that was jarring for a long time. Might still be. I think we've done the best job that we can do to patch that over. It's like things like that, you know, like, um, yeah. So, you know, a lot of notes like that, big picture notes, little picture notes. And you can, it also like fielding all the notes is tough too. Cause sometimes people have fucking notes that are just like, out of, you know, don't, so you got to kind of find common threads yep. in like sections that people are talking about and try to understand it and go back in and like rework those stuff like that. One of the reasons I, I started this show is because I was interested in how to, to make films with crypto on the blockchain. When did NFTs get introduced to you? NFTs were introduced to me about a year ago during the pandemic. We were still in it. Yeah, yeah, we're still in it. Um, we're still in it. I was, yeah, we're still in it. Um, I, uh, I just moved into this house that I'm in now. And I remember sitting in my office and I was on Clubhouse and I heard about NFTs. And I've been into crypto for a long time. Uh, I've owned Bitcoin for a long time. Big believer in blockchain. Love the technology. I'm like... So gung-ho about what it means for society. I believe in all the big picture ideas around it. And when I heard about NFTs, my first reaction was like, eh, <laughs> which, which was crazy. Um, and then I looked into a little further and I was like, okay, this is cool, but I don't know how it'll work for movies. I couldn't, I couldn't see it right away. Um, and then I saw it. Did you have a distribution plan for Flinch when you were making the film? My plan for the movie was... First, see if one of the big tech companies will buy the movie for like three times the budget or something, right? That's like the first goal that any filmmaker who makes a movie has for it, right? That did not happen. Um, so then after that, I know the next phase for independent filmmakers and it's not fun and I don't like it. So I didn't want to do it. So I said to myself, fuck that. I'm not doing that. Festivals? Um, festivals. I, was ta I wasn't talking so much festivals. We had some opportunities that we didn't take because the pandemic was in full swing. And it was like, oh, it has to be virtual. And I didn't like that idea. Um, I didn't want to do a virtual screening online. Um, and then I like the other routes that I was talking about is like going with, like, with the foreign sales company or going with like there's these middle conglomerate companies that will kind of then get you on Netflix as a second tier, but will also like get you on iTunes and these other places and then charge you exorbitant fees. And, um, I don't like that. There's a lot about the business of the, the making films for independent filmmakers. It's just terrible right now. And I was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm going to release this myself. Right. I was like, I can, I can do this myself. I've seen what these people do. I can do just as good a job, if not better. 
than what a lot of these companies are doing. You know, less like Netflix coming in and just taking the movie exclusively. Um, and so that's what I decided to do. And, and I was kind of figuring out the model while doing that. You know, I'm like looking, going, okay, well, anyone can get their movie on iTunes. Anyone can get their movie on Amazon, right? Like there's no the bar, to, the barrier to entry is just not there. Then it becomes a marketing play. How do you make people aware of it? Look, the, the model's kind of dead for distribution in, in many ways, unless you're going to one of the streaming companies. And I knew I didn't want to go through these aggregation companies and things like this. Um, so I, I was like, I got to do this myself. And there were filmmakers that I know of who have been releasing films themselves and kind of like leading that charge. And I'm a big believer in that. And I think that creators in general, I think the future and technology is going to enable creators to release their work themselves and have that direct relationship with an audience. We're seeing it in music in a big way. What were those creators? How were they releasing their films? Because I don't, I think the releasing it as an NFT is sort of new. What was their method? They were just getting it on iTunes and Amazon themselves and marketing it to people directly. That's what they were doing, um, which is cool. But it's still like once you do it, you kind of realize that even still they, they, they own the market in such a weird way. They don't share data with you. You don't get any data from them on like who's clicking and watching and what, like it's just, and, and they know what they're doing, you know, like, it's just, just like, um, it's like maintaining all the control. Uh, but that's what they were doing. That's what artists, that's what like a lot of filmmakers, like indie filmmakers were starting to do is like, no, we can put this up ourselves. Cause for a while you couldn't even get on iTunes without one of these larger companies that, that kind of broke down. Now you can. Um, so I said to myself, okay, I'm going to do this myself. Um, and we got into theaters first at the top of 2021. And we did drive in theaters because uh, you know, all nice. the other theaters, of were course, it also fits the drive-in aesthetic. It really does. It really does. And it, it went over really well. And people really loved the film. And then I was like, okay, well, then I, next I got to drop it. I got to drop it digitally on iTunes and Amazon, these places, right? So I was like, okay. So I set up that. And it was kind of right around that time when I really understood NFT technology and what it meant. And for me, it was like this moment of like, oh, my God, this is the way. You know, like this is it. Uh, I had, you know, I I saw, I just saw it. I, I was like, okay, you can create a, a player, a media player, where you can watch the film just like iTunes. Connect your crypto wallet, um, and make it accessible for anyone to watch the film. You have to use a network with really low gas fees. So I chose Matic Network because it's Ethereum adjacent. Um, I'm working to build that out for multiple chains because I think anyone, a Solana lover, should be able to watch the movie they want to as well um but so we built out our little media player and then came up with the structure for okay um essentially what happens is a community of nft holders kind of replaces the distribution company but they also kind of replace the marketing company so essentially they're replacing the studio right like whatever the studio would be and so just like coming up with the call it the tokenomics behind what the nft community is in relation to the film and how that works being that film one is complete i've always had this vision for like a three-part crime franchise out of flinch right um even when i was making it i was just always like kind of building out what happens part two part three like that's always been my goal so it's like okay cool what we can do is we release this 
essentially as an NFT project, right? So you create the characters um, and utilize this generative character concept for the subsequent films and then also the game, right? So you make NFTs and we've, we've come up with two tiers of NFTs. One's a poster, which is like, you know, like one of 2000, okay? And it's just like, that's kind of like the simplest version of, and I think in my, my mind, I think the way this is gonna go with film NFTs in general is like, yeah, a lot of people like you'll own a poster, right? Let's say one day Instagram allows people to display their NFTs just the way that you can display your photos, right? Well, you might, if you're a lover of movies, you might own several NFT movies and your posters will be there. And that's kind of like a way to represent your ownership in something. It's your connection via the wallet so you can receive airdrops of whatever that may be and then promote the film, right? Because you rep it. Um, so we, we did the posters and then the generative characters, which is like our next tier. And those are the characters in film one and then also characters that will exist in film two, three, and the games, like I said. Um, so it's just like coming up with this structure of how it works, building out the media player, getting the art together. It took quite a bit of time to like really understand. Like it was a process of like going, oh, wow, like NFTs and movies is going to be huge. This is going to be the way it's going to work moving forward. And then figuring out the economics and tokenomics and the functionality finding the developers to get the smart contracts built, like just kind of jumping into all of that. Um, and, and here we are now, we're launching. Can you explain why this is so much different than, let's say, Kickstarter, where you would maybe finance a movie, invest 20 bucks or 50 bucks or 100 bucks in a movie, maybe you'd get a t-shirt or a poster, and that's it. That's the end of your relationship with that movie. Maybe you get a, a, a link to watch the movie at some point. Um, but that's it. That's the end of your relationship to the movie. This is very different. How so? Yeah, it's very different. So the the biggest difference is that you have real ownership and the opportunity for real value creation or real utility. So like what we're doing with this film, right? Um, a percentage of the income from the movie gets sent back to all NFT holders, right? And then that's going to be true for part two and part three as well. And then any other ancillary that might happen, right? So that's like, that's just one simple use case. So as an example, this cinema that we have, right? In order for people to get whitelisted, they have to watch the movie on the, on the, the Matic network on our cinema, right? They pay two Matic tokens to watch it, right? Well, when we have NFT holders, um, a percentage of the income from that cinema will just be airdropped automatically back to our token holders, uh, our NFT holders. Um, so that's a revenue stream essentially, right? And then the more that they are promoting the film and out there and saying, you know, we got to watch this movie and having watch parties or whatever they're doing and onboarding people to discovering this really cool movie, kind of the more value they're creating for themselves, right? And then if we've built this as a community really into something that has some really strong word of mouth, we get through our mint, we go and make part two, well, then part two might be, you know, 10 times bigger than the first one. And then again, that film, and then who knows, maybe, maybe that's two years down the road from now. And maybe more and more people are more comfortable and have more, uh, you know, wallets, crypto wallets in our, you know, and then that one is real gangbusters. And then the same could be true for part three, right? So it's like the community is building the value for themselves and for the project. And they both kind of give to each other you know so so that yeah with, with this there's the utility aspect which is 
the IRL, you know, exploitation of the film, which like, yeah, the film will still remain on iTunes and that income will still, a portion of it will still go back to NFT holders. And then the decentralized cinema is also paying back. And then that will continue to happen two or three and then merchandise as well. And then the soundtrack, um, like all of those things are revenue streams, but then there's the NFT itself, right? So this project continues to grow in strength. Those NFTs ideally continue to become more valuable, right? Because that's your representation of your ownership into the project. So it's like two ways. There's like the ongoing stream of income and then the value of the NFT. Whereas a Kickstarter campaign, you don't, you don't get any of that, right? It's like, it's completely different um, as I see it. Um, economic models, you know, like one's like patronage. It's like, you know, and the other is like investing. You're involved. You're, you're an owner. Is there a way for audience members, if I were to go and, and watch your film on the blockchain and I know I'm going to receive um, some of, of some money back at some point, is there a way to see the different levels of like how much money the movie is making or it's, or it's just a surprise like, oh, look, I've made some more money today through this NFT? Well, yeah. So the decentralized cinema is on the blockchain. So you can go and see that it's transparent, which is one of the beauties of this technology is you can, you can actively see what's coming in and out. Um, and then as far as like the iTunes sales and like all of those other sales and things like that is um, that is not on the blockchain. That's still controlled by Amazon or Apple, you know, or, or Google. Um, and so we're going to figure out a model for what to do with those funds. Um, but it'll probably be some process of depositing those amounts that come from that, which I think for film one will be 20%, film two will be 50, and then film three will be 100% is what we're eyeing for, like how much goes back to the community. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so like for film one, like that 20% of whatever continues to accrue from the exploitation will get dropped into our, um, our project's wallet, right. And then distributed back to the community accordingly, uh, via the Matic network. So if I'm a community member, I not only get an NFT, I not only get that might grow in value. I not only get um, some money coming back from the film making money on all these different platforms, but there's also the matter of governance, right? Yes. Another great <clears throat> thing about NFTs is that the community is involved. They have a say in the direction of the projects, um, much like, again, like a studio would, right? So my vision for this in part two is... It's, this is why you have to watch the film in order to become a member of the community is you know, we're going to have an ongoing discussion, right? And I'm actually building out a section. So eventually what you'll do is you'll connect your wallet. You'll go to, if you hold an NFT, you'll have ex access to this area where there'll be like a kind of a click through visual click through questionnaire about certain things that I'm considering for the development of part two, right? As we build out what part two is going to look like. Uh, and this could be a variety of things. Do we utilize flashbacks to tell the story of Joe Doyle when he was young? Um, where does Joe Doyle and his mother go to after this? The desert, the high, the, the forest, the city, a different It's like a variety of questions that are going to be posed in a very visual way. And then everyone clicks through and that gives me the filmmaker data, right? Is essentially what it's giving me. And then within our discord, we'll have discussion forums where we're able to, come together, which we've already been doing, 
Um, and we, we have an, like really already wonderful group of active people that just love the movie. They get involved. And so we get on there and we chat and I'm, I'm talking with them as, as if they're my studio, as if they're my producers, the way I do. Like when I write a script, I am bugging so many people around me to just like talk through my ideas. Right. So I'm going to utilize this community to do that for this franchise. And the goal is, is that hopefully together we are able to make part two better than part one. And then we're able to make part three better than two and one and create a franchise, a crime franchise. That's just fucking juicy. Um, so yeah, so you give the people governance over the creation and development of this project is, is, is the concept. How far reach does that governance have? Uh, being a director with a very clear, specific vision, um, you, you don't want to give all the governance to the community because then it won't be your film. So how do you balance that? So I will say this. I'm building a platform, a larger platform for multiple movies right now to do this, right? So, and, and we can get into what that looks like, right? But on that platform, I will, other filmmakers will be allowed to list their projects, right? So let's say we agree to have some other filmmaker list a project. It's gonna be up to that filmmaker to decide what level of governance they wanna give to their community, okay? The platform is always gonna side with directors, right? We're a creator first platform. And I believe in giving directors final cut, final say. Okay. Um, but let's say a director, a really cool director that we like wants to come on the platform and they want to experiment and they want to do something really cool and go, you know what? I'm going to literally let the community guide in decision-making. They could do that and we could see how that goes and it might work out really well. It might bomb. Okay. But it'll certainly be an artistic experiment. So that is going to be possible as far as flinch with myself as the director and creator of this. Um, yeah, the final say is going to sit with me. It's me using the community to workshop the franchise and build it out. Right. So it's like we work together. The best example is like a studio, you know, or it's like your team of producers. Right. Or it's like, as an example, when I talked about doing my test screenings, right, I would hold countless amounts of test screenings. So now what I'll be able to do is when I'm in the editing process on the film, I'm going to turn to the community and go, hey, guys, we're going to do a screening. Okay. We're going to find a way to do it privately so that there's no security issues because we don't want the movie to get out and be pirated. We're going to do this test screening and there's going to be this questionnaire. You log in your wallet. We watch together. We have a conversation about it. I'm going to be able to ask you questions. Did act two work for you? Did you feel bored in act three? Did you see the twist coming? Is the romance palpable you know, whatever questions we have and then also conversely the team the community can pose things back to me and they can say hey cameron i'm not feeling this or i loved this you know or we need more of th whatever it may be or hey i have an idea on how to solve a problem and it's an ongoing conversation and so that conversation will happen from the beginning to the end right they are again they are the movie studio um now yeah, I'm not going to be forced into doing anything, right? Like they are trusting me to a large extent to be the director, just like good producers need to trust the director. I've produced a lot of movies. The ones that came out best are the ones where there's a good director that I believe in and I support them. 
right? I make sure the director has what they need. I'm there to lend ideas and challenge them and ask questions and poke and hear their answer and go, okay, cool. I dig that answer. And maybe they can, they'll think about my idea. I'm not going to impose my idea upon them, right? That's how I'm going to work with this community, right? Um, that's that, yeah, that's how, that's how I plan to use this NFT community in the development moving forward on the franchise. What is your vision, let's say, for the future of all of this as far as making it worthwhile to the community while allowing creators to deliver on their own vision? Let's talk about it from the platform's perspective, right? The way I'm building out my platform is there's going to be two types of NFTs. There will be platform NFTs. I'm calling them studio NFTs, right? They're like a membership. <clears throat> and then there is project per project NFTs, right? The first drop the platform will have will be these studio NFTs. And there will be tiers. There's going to be five tiers. The lowest tier is going to probably give you some like, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what each one gives you just yet because I'm really building out the tokenomics. And I'm super focused on flinch, but like, the simplest one is probably you get to watch movies on the platform, whatever exists for free forever, right? It's like, it's going to be a very inexpensive, simple, right? The highest tier is probably going to be like, you know, a very large percentage of income from our cinemas always pay back. You have access to in-person premieres for every single movie that the, that comes out. We're going to, you know, like the big picture goal is to establish a IRL studio location where if you're a holder, you can come and like participate, but it's also where the operations for the company will continue forward to manage what hopefully is a lot of projects that the platform oversees. Right. So like, if you imagine, let's say in 10 years from now, this platform has a hundred movies and let's say we have cinemas in every metaverse, Facebook started their own metaverse, Decentraland's popping off, Sandbox, Amazon's got a metaverse, Disney's got a metaverse, and we were able to buy land in all of them and put our own little theater there, right? Plus we have our in-space metaverse where our theater is just an IRL or whatever, or, or a link, URL link. And it's like Netflix, it's sitting, there's an app on the television and you go there and you go to ours and you connect your wallet to it and you get to see what movies are being offered or watch new movies and you can see the income stream that's being generated. And all those hundred films are playing in all of these cinemas all around the world at any given time and a percentage of that income is just flowing directly back into your wallet, right? It's like, so that that's like the kind of the bigger picture of it. And then there's the governance, right? So if you hold one of these NFTs, you're going to have some governance over the direction of the studio. Right. And then there's, there's so many ways to do it, but like you can break off initiatives. So people can come together and say, Hey, we want to oversee the horror film division. Right. And you can create a DAO that might manage horror films specifically. And then there will be opportunities within that for anyone who holds those studio tokens to, Get really involved, read early drafts of scripts, give those notes. Like everyone's going to be, it's going to be like a development department, right? Where you're going to be reviewing projects and then deciding on what gets to the next step, what might get greenlit, what doesn't. And then the green light for the studio is what gets posted for Mint, right? And then there's like two checks and balances. One is the studio itself has to make sure that the project can be completed once it's listed, right? So we have to review the budget and the schedule and the script and the team. And be able to say to anyone who might be purchasing this NFT, hey, this thing happens, we can see this through, 
right? We have the budget necessary to achieve the vision of the screenplay and this director, right? But then once it is offered, then anyone who holds an NFT will have first pre-mint on any projects, any specific projects, NFT. And then once that's gone through, um, then it's open to the public, right? And then the public can come in and just pick project per project. Now, project per project, again, the governance is really going to be what the filmmaker decides to offer. You know, like Tarantino could come to us and go, I love this. I want to do a movie this way. I'm not interested in dealing with the studios. I need 200 million bucks to do it. We're going to drop 100,000 NFTs. Each will be two grand an NFT. And you don't get fucking any say. I'm, I'm Quentin fucking Tarantino. But you get to own a Tarantino movie. You're coming to the premiere. You're going to be involved. You're going to see screenings first. I'm going to talk with you along the way, like whatever access is given. But I'm the boss. That's the way I want this, right? And we're going to respect that most likely because he's Quentin Tarantino, right? But then there could also be another cool director, someone else who could come along and say, I'm doing this project and I'm going to use you guys like I would use a development team and test audiences right and so like as an example on flinch part one my fiance who's a producer on the film she's like very analytical she's a business person she's super sharp she created a google doc that was just a questionnaire that anytime someone watched the film they could just go through and do it and then it would give us the data back live right so it's like that's one really great way to use a community and then when the community has ownership they're invested to get the best data Right. They're, they're invested to like be involved early on. Um, and by the way, like there's many ways that a community can be involved outside of just the creative, which I think the creative is very valuable. There are some filmmakers that might be like, I don't want to hear from anybody. OK. And they can live and die on their own sword. If they make great movies that return value to their community and their NFTs fucking crush and their movies are dope then God bless them. Let them not, they don't, you know what I mean? Like I might want to support that person. You know, Chris Nolan's going to be like that, but he's going to offer an NFT. I'm buying that shit. I wanted to buy the Tarantino NFT before I got stopped. But then if there's also a filmmaker that's super collaborative and he's like, no, I'm really going to work with my community. And like, we're, we're going to be a fucking team. We're going to make an amazing franchise together. And I go, okay, I'm going to take a shot on this filmmaker because I like film one or I like their previous movie or I like their script. And it works out. And then we're building and we're, we're it's like, okay, then I built trust. And then that filmmaker is going to go and drop their next franchise, whatever that may be. And then they're going to have a track record and the community is going to come along with them. And the community is going to go, no, I fuck with this guy. I spend 20 minutes a week reviewing his or her notes and it's paid off for me over the last three years. I'm an owner in some amazing film projects, right? So it's really like time's going to tell how it's going to work. The creators who utilize their community in the right way are going to succeed in my opinion. Um, and the ones who don't might succeed if they're auteur geniuses or they might flop if they're not, right? And that's the beauty of this technology. We're seeing it already in... NFT projects like the Bored Apes and CryptoPunks and Junkyard Dogs and Alien Friends and Crypto Goons, right? It's like these are communities of people. They're not telling the artist how to draw the art, but they're supporting the artist and they're coming up with ideas. They're just going to say, oh, well, what if we did this or what if we did it in real life event for this, right? And there, there's like a million ways. It doesn't have to be creative. There's a million marketing concepts the community could come up with. How can we build more value for ourselves? Um, we could say, hey, we have an opportunity to spend this amount of money on marketing. We can do billboards, we can do Facebook ads, 
how do we utilize this? And the community can make decisions. Um, we could say, hey, Netflix wants to buy part two. We've created so much noise for Flinch. Netflix made us an offer for part two. They want to outright purchase it though, but they're offering us five times the budget. Community, let's make a decision. We're all going to come out pretty and we get to still hold our NFTs. They may have some collectible value because we were the first that did this. But as far as revenue stream in our cinemas, it's not going to happen anymore. Netflix is going to own it. There'll be a one-time deposit. It's going to come out to this and it'll be airdropped to everybody. Or do we want to ride? Do we want to keep owner right and then pose the decision yes or no what do we do right like there is so many ways to use an nft community so anyone who doesn't see that just doesn't hasn't dived into nfts yet and they they still think they're just expensive jpegs which they're not they're communities they're communities that build value together so that that would be my answer does the platform you're building have a name that's a great question as of now i'm calling it ardor which has been my production company for years ardor pictures um it's like burning passion and love uh for for cinema which is just my thing um i might stick with that name i I mean i've played around with some other names i'm not going to say them um we'll see we'll see what happens is that platform itself a dao or decentralized no, it's not. It's an NFT community, again, just like any of these other projects are. Um, and the reason why I want that, I want it to be like the Netflix of film NFT platforms, not the YouTube, because I still have to make sure that once an artist mints, they deliver their movie, right? Like, I don't want to create a platform where someone with, say, a lot of followers who's never made a movie can drop a film, raise $10 million, go try to shoot the movie, run out of budget, go over schedule, not finish their film, and go, I'm so sorry, guys, I didn't finish it. I've never really made a movie. You're like, making a movie is, is, is tough, and there's a skill set that goes behind it. So we're really acting like the studio or like a Netflix, right? Whereas Netflix places the money overseas production. They still trust filmmakers, but they're sending – their representative to be on set and just make sure that it happens the right way. And then of course, making sure that the rights for each project are set up correctly, legally for the communities and then honored for the sake of the platform. Right. So that's where like, that's where the studio has to fit in my opinion. Um, And there's certain expertises that go along with that, that I I think work better than just like blanket communities. Um, But within that we will create, various DAOs, like I said, like a DAO for say horror films, right? right? Or a DAO for, let's say we, let's say we get a movie that really crushes and we want to do a spinoff. Let's say we want to do the story of James from Flinch. Say that character right. just becomes really popular and we want to do a backstory movie on that character. Just as a you know a hypothetical, well, we could create a DAO for that and say, okay, we're going to spin off this IP and we're going to put this. If you, if you really want to be a part of it, join this DAO. And let's work together to see if we can create a really strong spin-off. Like there are ways to do that, but the studio still has to, I think, manage the production, development, and legality of everything so that it's held together. That, that's the approach that I'm taking. Do Do you feel like, um, let's say, Ardor, the platform, or the horror DAO beyond the community, are they creating? work opportunities for the infrastructure of these organizations is this all run by just you or do you need a team that to help sort of develop these uh platforms oh 100 percent a team is needed um so 
Yes, there's two answers to that question. Um, as I've thought about it so far, is one I have some amazing relationships um, with some really incredible producers and filmmakers, and they will certainly be some of the earliest tapped as this thing grows. Right? I mean, we're talking like producers who have way bigger credits than me that I will go to each of them and say, "Hey, do you want to come be a part of this? This thing's growing." Uh, I need someone to review projects and head up development or head up this section and assemble a really strong team as we build. So that's one is like utilizing the relationships that I have from in the industry. And then two, yes, a big part of this is giving a path for the community to be involved. Um, I think that we will have onset producers that grow out of our community. I think we will have development executives that grow out of our community. I think we'll have writers, screen screenwriters. I think we'll have directors that grow out of our community. Just as an example, again, with Flinch, right? Let's say there happens to be someone who's really got strong ideas about Flinch and the franchise and where the characters go. And they're in that discord talking, right? And by the way, I'm in there talking on a regular basis. I'm hearing the ideas from people and seeing what's working out, right? Let's say someone really shows like next level of support or investment in this the screenplay writing of any particular project. They're really giving notes. Whenever a new draft comes out, they're reading it quickly and sending back notes quickly. You can kind of see that. Well, those people are going to have an opportunity to like rise through the ranks. And I, I want to create an opportunity for those people to rise. Um, yeah. A hundred percent. It's, it's um, it's a place for people to choose your own involvement, you know, but that's that's what I see for the future of NFTs period is like, I think that it's it, it, let's say you work a nine to five job, and, but you have a passion for something else. Well, NFT is really an interesting opportunity for anyone to spend that extra 10% of their life's time towards something else and try to build something out of it as a community. Right. And if they're successful, they, they will do it as a community, whatever it is. It doesn't even have to be movies. It could be music, art, venture capital, philanthropy. You know, it's so much. Right. And they could just invest what they have financially or time wise. And it's those little investments together as a community that really grow things to be big. What did we miss about Flinch or about Ardor or about uh, the platform you're building? that you want audiences to know? My goal is to make the dopest, one of the dopest crime movie franchises uh, out of Flinch. And I think it can be done. Um, I want to do it with a community of NFT holders. Um, I would I would encourage anyone who's interested in this space to try out our cinema. Just go watch the movie that way. You know, um, Use your crypto wallet, get on the Matic network, Watch the film, um, and and then from there you can decide, you know, if you want to be a part of it or not. But I would I'd say play around with the tech. Well, I will definitely play around with the tech. I, I'm a fan of Flinch, and and I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, tell people where they should go uh, as far as if they want to be a part of the community. The Discord is a great place. You can kind of find all of our socials and read more about the project at our website, which is www flinchthemovie.com um, so that's a really good starting point from there you'll find our Twitter our Instagram our Discord and I would encourage you to follow all of those things we're doing a lot um, just get involved
Awesome. Yeah, we'll put all those links in the episode description and uh, check out Flinch, everybody. It was it was awesome, and uh, we should all be excited for Flinch two, three, and and more. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Cameron. Thank you. Mm-hmm.